Welcome to Tapeheads. I'm Sean. I'm Lindsay. Tapeheads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. This time we're vamping out a little bit with the uh, 1987 horror classic, The Lost Boys. Uh, this is a tape from my collection. This is a movie that I know and love. I've seen it. Yeah, you I like it. I was, I, was, I was getting to that. Okay, okay. Right, what's what's your own history with the Lost Boys? Okay, this is actually only only the second time I've seen it, but I enjoyed it the first time, and I was actually introduced. To this. this is another movie my mom insisted that my brother and I needed to watch because it was really good. Of course, my mom loves all the spooky movies. It's an R-rated movie, but it's. Like a lot of the best vampire movies, it's sort of a coming-of-age movie. It's almost geared towards the teen set in a lot of ways. I'm thinking about yeah. Fright Night and Let the Right One In. Like these movies where, obviously, there's a lot of Peter Pan uh, oh, references yeah. in the movie. Lots. Staying young and free forever. Like it's Never it's very, growing up Never growing up. Yeah. We have these... Uh, Presumably very old vampires that uh, are just kind of in perpetual rebellious teen mode. Their peroxide hair and their leather biker jackets. No ads on this tape so we can cut straight to the meat of this thing. What, do you remember the first time that you saw The Lost Boys? You, you said that your mom introduced you to yeah, it. Yeah, I was in... My brother and I were in high school, I think, and she took it out she she'd gotten it on sale on dvd or something and she had said that it was really good and we needed to watch it we watch it i enjoyed it i thought you know it's i don't watch a lot of horror or this kind of like meaty fantasy sort of film but i enjoyed it it's it's pretty good the characters are interesting it's got a lot going on when i think of the lost boys i think of the santa cruz setting granted it's santa carla in the movie because santa cruz said please don't Remind people that we used to be the murder capital. A lot of movies were shooting in Santa Cruz around this time. There's the Dirty Harry movie Sudden Impact, which has sort of the final shootout on the boardwalk. You got killer clowns from outer space shooting there. Like, a lot of movies were shooting at the Santa Cruz Beach boardwalk at this time. Definitely did not want uh, these memories of the high crime rate in the 70s to be uh, rekindled. Of course, I think these days Santa Cruz has embraced it a little bit. Well, because they want to be fun and kooky, and what's more fun or kooky than being, you know, somewhere where violent crime happens? Also to that end, I feel like this is one of the few big Hollywood movies that really gets the hippie Northern California vibe just right. So the movie stars Jason Patrick as Michael, which is a name that you hear many, many times throughout the movie. And you said he's... Pretty famous, but I actually didn't know who he was. I mean, Jason Patrick, I'd say that sort of the 90s was when he sort of peaked. He did a lot of these pot boilers like Rush. Later he was in like Narc and... Uh, I don't know what these movies uh, are. <laughs> He's in a lot of movies that haven't really withstood the test of time, with the exception of The Lost Boys. Um, he was the Keanu Reeves replacement in Speed 2. When Keanu said, no, I'm not getting on that boat, Jason Patrick said, yeah, I'm getting on that boat with Sandra Bullock. He's in a movie that I like pretty well, Your Friends and Neighbors, uh, but I think that for a, for a very brief moment in uh, Hollywood history, he was kind of the it kid. Like, they really had big plans for this guy. It enough to steal Julia Roberts from Kiefer Sutherland, you tell me. Oh, 
that's so sad. I don't even really want to talk about it. But yeah. yes, but you you bring up a great point, which is Keeper Sutherland is in this movie, <laughs> which is the reason you love it so much. Well, that's part definitely part of it. I think the Santa Cruz setting is number one. Kiefer Sutherland as David, the uh, not quite head vampire, but definitely the ringleader of this gang of motorcycling, vamping out teens. You got the two Corys in this film. The first appearance of the two Corys together. Corey Haim as Mike's brother Sam and Corey Feldman as one half of the Frog Brothers, the uh, local vampire killing boys who work at the comic book store the thing is they just read about killing vampires and they have no experience and you figure this out later when they go into the vampire nest to do some killing and they freak out because they're what are they 12 years old or something 13 maybe in the world of this movie people kind of know that santa carla is just rotten with vampires everyone except for diane west and her two sons who decide to move out to santa carla of course, her father gives her no warning whatsoever. No, hey, maybe you don't want to take your two young boys out here because they're going to get murdered by vampires. Well, that's setting up the, the greatest closing line in any movie, which is when it's revealed that the grandpa knew about it the whole time and says, One thing about living in Santa Carla I never could stomach. All the damn vampires. It's like you could have given them a heads up. I feel like it's sort of set up with the character because he's kind of senile. He's, he's a complete really pothead. Yeah. I feel like in his mind, he's just kind of like, whoa, I'm surprised you want to live with me with all the damn vampires, but sure, why not? This is a man that does taxidermy as a hobby. Is it his hobby or is it his profession? It seems to be his life, is taxidermy. His obsession. <laughs> and like... Corey Haim's character, Sam, the younger brother, Sam, just every single day gets a new taxidermied animal in his bedroom and he hides them in the closet because they freak him out. Without comment. Uh, yeah, Bernard Hughes is grandpa. An amazing performance. Who else have we got in this movie? We've got a... Ed Herman. Oh, yeah. From Gilmore Girls, Rory's grandfather. Oh, yeah. And he's so young here. It's really weird seeing him in this after only knowing him from Gilmore he's Girls. He's got that fresh out of the box Edward Herman sheen in this movie. <laughs> uh, nice smooth skin. Nice smooth skin. Tall, lanky figure. And, you know, going back to the Frog Brothers, it's funny how... I only think of Corey Feldman in my mind when I think of the Frog Brothers, and every time I revisit this movie, it's like, oh yeah, there's this other kid who didn't really go on to do anything, Jameson Newlander. He also doesn't do as much in this. Like, of the two brothers, Corey gets the most lines. Yeah, I mean, Corey had already done a couple of the Friday the 13th movies. He was already in Goonies. Goonies, he had a cameo in Gremlins, like he was sort of a known, you know, entity at this time. But the other kid, I, I just don't know if he ever really did anything yeah. else. I mean, this was no Weasley twin duo, right? Like, one of the kids was filler. What's funny is, years later, 2008, there were some direct-to-video sequels that just followed the Frog Brothers years later. And it was both original actors? It was both original actors. Wow. Um, Kind of a vehicle for Corey Feldman, if nothing else. And uh, I remember a friend of the show, Chad Hines, and I uh, trying to watch the second one, and it just was not fun. I mean, even like sort of separating it and thinking of these later films as like fan fiction that Corey Feldman was just really into. Maybe I should give it another shot, but 
it's it's not maybe really for not. maybe not maybe, maybe life is short i shouldn't watch the, the lost boys sequels we've got a uh, jamie gertz as star sort of the love interest uh for jason patrick's character she's definitely doing a madonna thing in this her hair and then the white virginal tank tops that they put her in is, it's kind of funny it's very timely the movie's set during summer. There, there's all these like concerts and parties on the beach, and during a very uh, riveting performance by Tim Capello on the saxophone, Michael makes eyes with Star, and he follows her around kind of creepily. Like really creepily, because he he's literally surrounded by a ton of people. He sees this one girl, and then immediately becomes obsessed with her just by looking at her. He knows nothing about her. There are beautiful people all around him because it's Santa Carla. Yet he zones in on this one girl and then in and starts stalking her immediately because that's the normal response. But that really is a great scene though with the the Timmy Capello concert the and shi- uh, the he's, oiled, he's oiled up to a perfect sheen. <laughs> uh, that song is on the soundtrack too. It's totally a great sure soundtrack. I remember seeing this um it wasn't the first time that I saw it, but probably the most memorable time. I saw it at the Castro Theater in a double bill with Near Dark, which is another great vampire movie. And um the crowd went nuts when Timmy Capello came out. <laughs> One of many times that there was just uh, a raucous cheer uh, during The Lost Boys. Although there was definitely a moment of silence when Kiefer Sutherland passed away. Wait, really? Yeah. He's all, the bad guy. All the other vampires when they die, uh, there's there's cheers. But like any, like any crowd that knows the cinema, you, you know... Pour one out for Kiefer. You, you, uh... We're talking David, the evil vampire that was trying to kill hey, him and was really rapey and weird. Hey, he's misunderstood. Other vampires? Yeah, you cheer them when they die. That's fine. That's fine. But when David passes away slowly to the tune of Thou shall not fall and the blue light comes on him, you just go silent. Maybe you pour out a little bit of your cherry Coke on the theater floor. My reaction to this is, if you're so taken by the fact that Kiefer is dying, then he didn't do a great job because you're not seeing him as the evil vampire that he was playing. His innocence is restored to him. Because they're all good kids underneath, you know? No. <laughs> <laughs> God. Like, we see him brutally murder a security guard at at the beginning of the movie. Well, we don't see You'll, it You happen, know, I'm glad that you implied. brought that up because on this watch I realized the vampire attacks are implied until over an hour into the movie. I mean, you sort of see the... They fly in. Yeah, they fly in. So the vampire rules in this universe are vampires can fly. It's I, I don't know if crosses ever work. Garlic doesn't, really. Garlic does. Garlic was what fried the the one long-haired one. That, that was the fell holy the water. Bath. But wasn't there garlic in there too? There was, but um, it was Corey Haim whole... like tries to put garlic on him, and the uh... vampires like garlic don't work. Okay, that's right. I guess sunlight works, but it's it's dark all the time in this movie. Whenever well, yeah. you see the vampires, we're only seeing them at night. 
Michael is becoming a vampire and goes out into the sunlight, but I guess he's transitioning. He's not. There's all a the way long there. transition period. It's almost more like werewolf rules when it comes to the the length of the transition. I like that all the initial vampire attacks are are very much off screen, and it's not until like the peak of Michael being brought into the gang. When he's like 90% sure his friends are vampires and then he, they take him out to kill all these surfers by a bonfire. And I'm sorry, but what what a wimp he is that he's getting to know these guys and hanging out with these guys who are awful to him and treat him like crap and he can see them treating other people like crap and they're clearly bad people. Well, they they take him out to uh, train tracks and... Uh... <laughs> Have him hang underneath. It's exciting teenage stuff. Yeah, you know? throwing rocks at trains. That's great. <laughs> no rules. It's like, could you not find other friends? There are so many people your own age. Yeah, but they're the cool kids. I mean, you know? part of it he's doing it is because he's so obsessed with Star. And he's really wanting to get close to them so that he can be around Star because Star hangs around them. Absolutely. So it's all of his unhealthy obsession with her appearance. But I also feel like there's sort of the seductive kind of almost homoerotic thing of like you're being brought into the order, you know, like you're part of this cool gang. Well, and these guys hang out in caves and they've yeah. got their... There's probably some sort of mind control going on too since they can make him hallucinate his food turning into maggots. Come on, Michael, how can a billion Chinese people be wrong? <laughs> Because he says he doesn't like rice. Yeah, who doesn't like who rice? Who doesn't like rice? Rice is the most innocuous food. You're eating maggots, Michael. You're pretty excited to see uh, Diane Weist plays the mom. Which well, is kind of a surprising choice because I think I don't really associate her with these kinds of movies. And she's kind of like a fun addition. She adds a little bit of humor in. I didn't realize that she had won two Oscars, both for Woody Allen movies. She won for Hannah and Her Sisters before this, and then after Bullets Over Broadway. They really got a powerful figure in this yeah. movie. Yeah, she gets the and credit, and you don't just throw that around. Yeah, and they actually do things with her, which is nice. Which One of the things I found disappointing was that Star just felt like a kind of flat character to me. She was just a sort of object of his affections and a tie and like a softening of Kiefer's evil vampire group to kind of like be that bridge to him crossing over. And I don't really feel like her character got to do very much or got very much development, but they they did a little bit more with his mom. The mom, you sort of get her desperation. She's recently divorced from the dad. He seems to be completely out of the picture. She's moved back in with her father. She's got this job at a video rental store with handsome Edward Herman. I think now at this change of scene, she's like willing to embrace being single and thinking about creating more of a life for herself outside of her two children and thinking about caring for them. And she's got her hands full there because one of them's turning into a vampire for most of the movie <laughs> and the other one's freaking out about it. I mean, there's the scene where uh, Michael tr basically tries to attack Sam in the tub yeah. and he's saved by his awesome dog, Nanook. She has to cancel her plans with Max because uh, Sam is freaking out because his brother is flying all over the place. Kids gotta get over it. Sometimes your brother becomes a vampire. I know. She, you know, she's clearly been through the ringer with her recent divorce, and she's hoping to start over in this new town, but 
Those damn vampires have other plans. It's kind of interesting, too, because she adds this, like, sort of no-nonsense kind of thing to it. Like, she's not pulled into all of the weird fantasy thing going on. Like, both of her sons are getting trapped in this, all these crazy happenings, and suddenly supernatural creatures are around them, and they're changing and stuff. And they're experiencing all of this crazy allegory to teenagedom that you see in Buffy and she's just kind of removed for, from it and just going, come on guys, can you not what, you didn't pick up the milk? You spilled it all over the floor and you just left it there? The carnation milk, as you pointed out. Yeah, they make they used to make fresh milk. That's so weird to me because I always know it is just the cans of milk and carnation, like the condensed milk and stuff. When there was the close-up of the carnation milk spilling out on the kitchen floor, we had to pause the movie because you had to look up. I had to look it up because I didn't know that was a thing. What did you find in your research about carnation milk? Just pictures of cartons. I couldn't really find anything. Like I was trying to figure out when they stopped doing it, and there was no. I couldn't find anything about that. If you have any exciting uh, carnation milk stories, listeners, you can... Mail them into tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. So we touched on this earlier, but the original screenplay, which was by Janice Fisher and James Jeremias, it was more like a Goonies type thing where they are really young kids. Like um, 11 or 12 years yeah. old. Yeah, so I assume much softer. Like it was would not have like the graphic violence of this movie. Or the sex scenes. Or the sex scenes. And the the Frog Brothers are described as chubby eight year old Cub Scouts. <laughs> Star would have been a boy instead of a uh, like a female love interest. And I think that they just sort of got caught up in this notion that, hey, Peter Pan's a a magical weird kid. He can fly around. He visits Wendy and her brothers at night. What if he was a vampire? And they even had all the character names the same as the characters in Peter Pan. And during this Which, lo- that's going a little too far. Yeah, it's going way too far. I feel like uh, when Joel Schumacher finally came on board, it was originally going to be a Richard Donner joint, but he went off to do Lethal Weapon the same year. Which is a good choice for him. It was I a mean, good choice for him, This is also very yeah. successful, but... I mean, this, in my opinion, is by far Joel Schumacher's best movie. Um, yeah, Richard Donner had tons of stuff to do after this. I feel like when Joel Schumacher came in to direct, part of his sort of ultimatum that he gave was like, let's age this up. Let's make them sexy teens. Let's make this, uh, you know, more like a teen sort of R-rated horror movie instead of this. A lot heavier, sexier, violent, hot. And you still see a little bit of the Goonies type thing in there with the Frog Brothers and their relationship Mm -hmm. with Sam. Um, The Frog Brothers who... Are super young, but are clearly putting on deeper voices. Than they oh, I love have. the Frog Brothers. So they sound like men. Aww. We we've barely talked about them yet, but what great characters these like amateur vampire hunters who have never really hunted vampires before. They've got all of this gear. They're constantly wearing their like utility vests and stuff. This might be, I know this isn't saying a whole lot, but this might be Corey Feldman's best performance in a film. Just see, because he's, he really like, I'm a cool warrior kid, and I guess you can hang out with me sort of thing. Where he's like, (laughs) desperately uncool, but he puts on this like, Rambo veneer to seem like a tough badass. He clearly goes and shops at the army surplus store. Yeah. There's so many great moments in this movie, like when they go into the church to fill up their super soakers with holy water. 
water. Or in the middle of a baptism, In the middle right? of a baptism. <laughs> so there's just all these people staring at them. There's somebody up on the dais with a priest. And they're just like filling up their uh, super soakers. I remember this movie coming up in uh, film school where I had a rather snooty professor in one of my introductory courses who showed the motorcycle chase. Well, not I guess it's not so much a chase. It's just like this fast ride through Santa Cruz. They go from the boardwalk to the bluffs. And he was basically making the argument that, Haha, look in this scene, the uh, spatial geography makes no sense because in each cut, they're in a different part of Santa Cruz. Which is ridiculous because this isn't Santa Cruz. It's Santa Carla. This is the fictitious town of Santa Carla. I'm sorry, are you gonna go and do a argument of like, you know what's really absurd? They're saying that they're vampires in Santa Cruz. Yeah. Like, this is a fantasy movie. And I, I bring this up because this has bugged me for a long time that Lost Boys was put on blast during a uh, college film course and I could never quite explain why it bothered me so much. <laughs> and then you finally pointed out the obvious. Well, this isn't Santa Cruz. This is Santa Carla. You don't know the geography of Santa Carla. There could be woods right by the beach. Absolutely. Like, it, it, it could be anything. It's whatever the filmmakers want it to be because they're creating this world, right? Like, yeah. this isn't a world that exists. They're He's on a motorcycle with vampires. And even if this was set in Santa Cruz and they explicitly called it Santa Cruz, murder capital of the world, it doesn't matter still because you you have a certain poetic license. You know, given the choice between what's uh, artful, packs a visceral punch like a motorcycle chase through the woods and what's authentic Santa Cruz. Okay, wait, but I'm going to throw one out, yeah, because you're saying this is poetic license. Is it poetic license in Freddie Prince Jr.'s Boys and Girls where he's a student at UC Berkeley <laughs> and they, on their breaks between class, they walk to the Golden Gate Bridge just to hang out? Well, that's just a stupid movie, so I don't know if I can... It doesn't apply to all movies. You first have to... Uh, okay, this is hey, my rule. But that's a pretty good moment when he's, like, you know, struggling with classes and girls, and he has to go out and walk there and figure it out I also like before the, he has to go back for an exam. So this is 2000s boys and girls that we're talking about, a deep cut here on Tapids. Uh, I like that you refer to it as Freddie Prinze Jr.'s Boys and Girls, that he's the writer, he's the auteur behind this masterpiece. Obviously. Oh, that's a movie we need to have on the show. Um, yeah. But yeah, I feel like the spatial geography on that, I, I can put that on blast because they never quite hurdled making a movie that's interesting. <laughs> you have to first have, you first have to legitimize yourself. And then you can do whatever you want with the uh, geography of the movie. They were pretty legitimate. They got to film on the UC Berkeley campus, which they weren't able to do for The Graduate. You heard it here first. Uh, Lindsay Bullender says, <laughs> boys and girls, a better film than The Graduate. Now, I said more legitimate, <laughs> not better. Okay. I feel like that's a much more egregious uh, bending of the rules, though, because that's the an entire body of water that separates I, so on either me, side of the bridge. It's got to be like a three-hour walk. Or they walked around, went across the Richmond Bridge. And for anyone not local to California, sorry, guys. But really, like, 
to drive just an example as an example to drive in your car from berkeley to the golden gate bridge can take at least half an hour at least mm-hmm. you know you mentioned the graduate there's another uh uh bit of this bending the geographical rules but again it's acceptable because the graduate's a good movie before so really you can only get away with it if you're a good movie yes exactly <laughs> that's that's my thesis here in the graduate when you're heading into san francisco you're on the upper deck and when you're heading to the east bay you're on the lower deck yeah in the graduate when he's heading to berkeley he's on the upper deck and they closed down the bridge specifically so he could do that well because, because it just want... looks so much it looks way more cinematic than that ugly undercarriage yeah i mean that that I can understand. I can understand that choice because you want the effect of showing him on the bridge and you're not going to yeah. really see it if he's underneath. But but I'm sure Freddie Prince Jr., when he wrote and directed Boys and Girls, also had this thing where he's like, wait, wait, wait. He tilted his beret <laughs> a little bit. It's like, wait, this is a Bay Area movie. We need, to, I don't know why I sound like Donald Trump. <laughs> it's Freddie Prince Jr. We... We need to see that Golden Gate Bridge during our lunch break. Oh, man. Yeah, 15 minutes between classes. You're going to walk a few hours over the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> but anyway, back to the Lost Boys. Uh, this big climactic battle inside the grandpa's cabin. There's this great moment when they think that they've killed the head vampire, David. Yeah. Moment of silence. Kiefer. Um, <laughs> and then... Max shows up, who they are the uh, boyfriend, uh, Edward Herman. Mr. Gilmore. Mr. Gilmore, uh, the boyfriend of the mom, shows up, who they'd originally discounted as being a vampire. Well, because they were testing him out. They threw holy water on him. They made him eat raw garlic. There was something else they did, wasn't there? Or was that it? They put a mirror up near his face. That's because right. that's another rule in this movie. You uh, have no reflection. Unless you're the head vampire, apparently. Yeah, that's the thing that was a little weird to me. Because it's kind of like he had absolutely zero reaction to the holy water. But the holy water could kill his underlings. Is he that well, powerful? I don't know. I mean, the, the head vampire should be the most powerful one. But they end up killing him with a car. The car hits him and stakes him. Yeah. Again, yeah. But you would think, okay, so if all of this stuff works on his baby vamps, but they don't work on him, why did staking work so well? Well, because that's the way to kill a vampire. I guess so. It's just kind of, it seems like they're being very flexible conveniently with the rules. There's also an odd scene where it's sort of a red herring where Edward Herman's character, Max, is coming home this like bat kite lands in front of him and he seems kind of scared like oh something's amiss and then you hear david and the gang coming up on their motorcycles and you're supposed to think oh shit they they got him but then later you see him again and i guess it was just foreshadowing that he was the head vampire and they're having a little vampire meeting yeah but he. But why would so he scared. be scared yeah yeah they were being manipulative to mislead the viewer and they were kind of probably counting on the viewer not really going back and re-watching it too closely this movie came out in the summer of 87 july 31st i feel like it was a little bit of a box office disappointment definitely not a bomb at an 8.5 million dollar budget and it made 32 million what's funny in the background of lethal weapon 
which came out the same year, Richard Donner, who was supposed to direct this movie. In the background behind Mel Gibson and Danny Glover at one point, there's a theater marquee that says, Lost Boys, the hit of the year. Aww. And they shot that well, like, you know, before Lost Boys had come out. And that, unfortunately, was not true. Uh, this was not the Aww. hit of the year. Um, as we know from the previous episode, Three Men and a Baby was the hit of the year. It should have said that on the marquee. <laughs> I just, it's uh, so funny that this <laughs> lost out to Three Men and a Baby. You're just loving that. Yeah. I But, again, like Good a lot of these... Tom Selleck. Oh, Tom Selleck. Like a lot of the movies that we have on this podcast, I think it really found its legs and its audience uh, on home video. And not um, just home video. I mean, even Santa Cruz has embraced it in recent years. And every summer they uh, have outdoor screenings of it, right? Which I'd love to go to someday. Um, friend of the show, Philip Laird, he went to UC Santa Cruz. And I know for a while in the dorms, he had a drinking game with his friends where they would watch the Lost Boys and take a shot every time someone said Michael. You would die <laughs> alcohol poisoning. Don't they say it over a hundred times? Uh, well, the next time Phil is on the show, uh, maybe he can e- explain in greater detail. Because I think they say Michael over a hundred times. And they I, must have been taking sips Maybe of sips of beer. beer. Yeah, that I could believe. Yeah, maybe some, some sweet Santa Cruz craft beer. But, but uh, you wouldn't, you'd make it about 20 minutes in before blacking out yeah if you were doing shots in any event i feel like this is a movie that uh had a very uh, you know soft theatrical run and has since been embraced which uh, i think is the beauty of vhs you know you can discover movies that didn't necessarily have an audience at their uh, first at bat all right sean i think it's about that time do you buy it rent it Or tape over it? I think we all know the answer. You buy it. (laughs) This might be my favorite vampire movie. The only one that comes close is Fright Night. I think I'd have to rewatch that one. Whichever one I've seen more recently, that's my favorite. Uh, The original Fright Night. Yeah. Although the Colin Farrell remake's okay as far as... It's it's fun. I've I've got no ill will against it. Um, You know, just a blast. It's... (laughs) Sorry, I'm imagining you having ill will against it. Like, you're just cursing it. You have a little, like, evil altar with, <laughs> with, where you have them and, like, you burn little mini versions of uh, Colin, Farrell? Colin Farrell and Effigy. You're not Chris Sarandon. <laughs> you know, I love this cast. Some great stuff from Kiefer Sutherland. He's throwing heat here. Edward Herman, of course, is fun. Diane Wiest. All these great actors. Joel Schumacher's best film by a country mile. You definitely want to watch this at least once a summer. (laughs) I couldn't wait for summer. I had to watch it in March. What do you think, Lindsay? I say rent it. I think I could give a buy it if they had done something a little more interesting with Star. I think that's the thing that kind of frustrated me while I was watching was I kept thinking... Damn it, what is this character? What is she doing? She's very much a token. Yeah, and that kind of frustrated me because there could have been something really interesting there that they just declined to do because she was hot and they needed an object of Michael's affections. But everybody else is really interesting. This wasn't one that I grew up with, but I definitely really enjoyed it and I liked seeing it and it is a fun version of the vampire lore. All right. Well, that was my pick. 
Next episode, we're moving on over to Lindsay's VHS collection. And what have you picked out for us? Something great, I hope. <laughs> it's got Tom Hanks in it. Okay, go on. It's The Man with One Red Shoe, which I think is probably a movie that a lot of people have seen the cover of but never actually watched. I know that the cover has Tom Hanks in suspenders just kind of laughing about the fact that he's got one red shoe. Yeah, and this is one of the movies, along with Big, that gets featured in that 20th Century Fox uh, VHS collection. Selections. Oh, selections, excuse me. It's in good company with uh, Commando and (laughs) Big. They're really broad with their their (laughs) classics, aren't they? Cocoon, Cocoon 2, all the classics. But a uh, small connection to this film, Ed Herman. Oh, Eddie Herms is back. Eddie Herms, Mr. Gilmore, is going to be back for another film. Wow, back-to-back Eddie Herms. I don't know if uh, our listeners will be able to handle this. <laughs> if they know who he is. <laughs> I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song, Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at SoundCloud dot com slash gargantulon if you'd like to learn more about us and our other episodes you can look up our website tapeheadspodcast.com we'd love to hear from you you can email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com and please rate and review on itunes that's it for tapeheads i'm sean and i'm Lindsay. until next time 